0: The sermon for today is from Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10, and chapter 21, verse 2, and verses 9 through 14. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels who were the seven bulls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb
1: recent article in Rolling Stones magazine featured the tech entrepreneur, Elon Musk. And he's the one who has, uh, this is hard to believe. He's one of the only people that have started $4 billion companies. And okay? one of them being Tesla, that, that fancy luxury, luxury electric car company. And the article featured how Elon Musk has everything. He has it all except for one thing. Went on to describe how he divorced his first wife and, uh, and then how he recently had broken up with his actress girlfriend. And, and so in the heels of that, they were interviewing him and listen to what he said, 46 years old. Being in a big empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways, no one over there. How do you make yourself happy In a situation like that, he added this When I was a child, there was one thing I said I never want to be alone. And then he whispered it again I never want to be alone. It's a great example of what we're made for and what we're not made for. We're not made for money, we're not made for material possessions. We're made for love, but what kind of love? You know, we, we throw ourselves into many counterfeit loves. We put ourselves into a relationship with things that really mirror a love-like relationship. We, we pursue a love relationship with money only to find it disappoint. We pursue a love relationship with success only to find it disappoint. We pursue a love relationship with, with people a relationship, a dating relationship, or even the pinnacle of it, marriage. And then in the midst of a broken world, in relationships, we find even that doesn't quite satisfy. And, and this one, I think, rings true, yet it, it flies under the radar. We, we pursue a love relationship with what I would call, quote, the grass is greener. That We pursue a love relationship with if, if I can just get here, right? If my circumstance can just get here. I'll be satisfied. And even that, we find at the end, disappoints. Reveals that we're made for love, but we're made for, for one love. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage or these passages in Revelation are all about. That we're made for the love of Christ. Why? And what exactly characterizes the love of Christ that we're actually made for? First, the love of Christ is a protective love. It's a protective love. Verse six of chapter 19 opens with this this multitude that are crying out, hallelujah. That word hallelujah, it means praise God. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, praise God. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Well, why are they, why is this great multitude in heaven around the throne singing hallelujah? You back up to the beginning of chapter 19. We read in verses one and two, again, same thing. Hallelujah, why? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Well, who's the great prostitute? Well, you gotta back up to chapter 18. Chapter 18 talks about Babylon. Well, who's Babylon? Babylon. In the Old Testament, it was the nation that brutally, brutally took God's people into exile. And it's really, a, it's a word that, has, that signifies evil. It's used throughout the Old Testament. The prophets speak about it, of the evil of Babylon. The great prostitute is just all that have participated with Babylon. It's, it's all that have participated in evil. The reason that the great multitude is singing hallelujah is because evil has been overthrown. In fact, the the fall of Babylon in, in chapter 18 of Revelation is spoken about, John says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah said in his prophecy in chapter 21. That evil has been overthrown and it causes the multitude in the heavens around the throne to erupt and say, hallelujah. Evil will not win, you know, as we look at Revelation, the whole book of Revelation is John, the, the veil being opened up for John to see a heavenly reality that one day will become an earthly reality. I've said it before, how's that tied to Advent? Well, in, in the book of Revelation, the veil opens and John goes up. But one day the veil's gonna open and Jesus is gonna come down. And that's what we long for in Advent. But as John looks up, he sees that evil has lost, that evil hasn't won that evil will not win. And that is so incredibly encouraging for us in our day, in the broken world we live in, where evil is everywhere. Now this is, it's oftentimes forgotten in suburbia, that evil is real, that evil is real. In suburbia, sometimes we get caught up in comfort and and, and cleanliness and wealth and ease and life just seems to cruise, but evil is real. And there are places in our city in Jacksonville where it's not forgotten, and it is real. You know, when, a, when a, a homeland security agent raids a basement in a home in this city to break up a ring, a sex-trained ring of children that have been inducted, or have been abducted into the sex trade, evil is real. Or when we read, we see it on the news of, of, of shooting and, and murder in our city. It's real. In fact, I was at the Southwind Villas Christmas party last th- past Thursday. And I was talking to a young mother, a mother of, of two boys, a nine and seven. And she started telling me about her boys. And she was so proud of her boys. And they were there and they were collecting their Christmas presents. And all of our people that showed up to do craft and Christmas cookies. and, and the kid, And she was so happy. And she's telling me about her nine-year-old and seven-year-old. And she says, and my, my older son, two years ago when he was 18, died from gun violence. And she said it almost matter-of-factly. And she said, that's why we moved south. We moved out of the north side to the south side to Southwind Village where we thought it would be a little bit safer for my boys. She was so proud of her boys. That evil is real. or or to the war-torn parts of Africa or the Middle East, that evil is real. Now, here's the thing. It's just as real in the suburbs. Because what I just talked about, all those examples are the extreme of a seed of heart condition of sin. Talk about the, the child sex trade, sex trafficking of young children. Where does that start? Starts with lust in the heart. That's the seed that if unrestricted by the grace of God could could get there. Or or where does murder start? Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount that murder starts with anger in the heart. That's the beginning of it. And left unchecked, apart from the grace of God, that's where it will end. So evil is real. And yet you see this great multitude. And who is this great multitude? These are all those that are gathered around the throne that have died. Some of them been martyred for their belief in Christ, their faith in Christ, and they're standing around the throne, right? With blood having been shed. Seeing that evil has been overthrown. And so we sit today in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In a broken world, evil having already been defeated by Jesus' first coming, but not yet fully eliminated by his second coming. It's what we call the already, but not yet that we live in the already of the defeat of evil, but the not yet of the defeat of evil. Jesus' love, and and the imagery here of bridegroom and bride, Jesus' love as bridegroom for his bride is a protective love. Now, what does that mean? Between his first and second coming, it means that he protects us, not necessarily from being touched by evil, but he protects us from being consumed by evil. Not necessarily from being touched by evil, but he he protects us from being consumed by evil. And that is the protection of a bridegroom who loves his bride. says, I've defeated evil and I'm going to come back again and defeat it for good and eliminate it for good. You know, the bridegroom imagery is all throughout the scriptures. In fact, It's one of the major images that describes God's love for his people. You go back to the Old Testament. Israel is called the bride. The book of Hosea. Hosea is a husband who who pursues his his bride, who is idolatrous and and, and a rebel and, and, and running out to find other lovers. And God says to Hosea, pursue her which is simply a beautiful picture of Jesus pursuing his church. Get to the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus invites people to a wedding feast, doesn't he? The apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This imagery of bridegroom and bride is all over the scriptures. And it it describes Jesus' love and it's a protective love. Growing up, my family would take trips out west in our little pop-up camper. They were so much fun. And I remember vividly several times being out in the Rocky Mountains. And we would, we would be in the car and we'd be traveling up this mountain, taking all the switchbacks. And inevitably there would be a fog, a heavy fog. You couldn't tell if it was fog or the clouds. We were that high in elevation, but so clouded that as we came around corners, All you would see was fog, but you knew. You knew there was some beautiful view right out there of the Rocky Mountains. You just couldn't see it because the fog had set in. And so we'd go back and forth and round these corners and we'd look out and go, oh, we can, it's there. I know there's a beautiful view. And then at some point, our car would come and it would be quick. Our car would come out of the fog and instantaneously, we would see this beautiful picture of the Rocky Mountains. And as we got higher and higher, you could look down and actually see the layer of fog and we were above it and we saw the beauty. Listen, experiencing sin and evil in our world between Jesus' first coming and second coming is a lot like traveling up a mountain in the fog. Because you know there's a beautiful view. In the midst of evil, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sin, you You know there's a beautiful view, but you know it by faith, not necessarily by sight. And yet one day, when that veil tears open and Jesus comes down, we are gonna lift above the fog and we are gonna see his face, his beautiful face, and it will no longer be by faith. It will be by sight. The bridegroom who protects us with a protective love, one day is gonna come back and we'll see him face to face. Jesus' love is a protective love. We are touched by evil, but we're not consumed by evil. Why? Because Jesus, the bridegroom, keeps us. Second, it's a protective love. Second, Jesus' love is a purifying love. Look at verses seven to eight. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now there's two themes that come out of this verse or these verses. One is that God is preparing a bride for his son. The second is that the bride is preparing herself for the wedding. So first, let's look at at God preparing a bride for his son. Verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The key here, it was granted her. In other words, this clothing is a gift. The bride doesn't have to go out and find the dress, the wedding dress. Jesus gifts this clothing to the bride. Now, what is the clothing? Isaiah speaks about it. In Isaiah sixty-one ten, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels." See, Jesus provides this clothing, this robe of righteousness, but to do that, he had to first remove our robe of unrighteousness that we're born into this world with, with unrighteousness and sin. And to do that, Jesus had to take that robe and put it on himself. He had to put on the robe of unrighteousness himself and then go get nailed to a cross. In fact, that's what he speaks of. That's what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5. It's, this, it's the sacrificial love of the bridegroom of Christ giving himself to take our robe of righteousness away and put it to death and pay for it so that he could then in turn give us his robe of righteousness listen how Paul writes it, Christ gave himself up for her the bride, Christ gave himself up that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without, without blemish. So the love that purifies you, the love that sanctifies you, the love that takes away your robe of unrighteousness and gives you Jesus' robe of righteousness is a sacrificial love. It required Jesus to give of himself, to give himself up. And that's what the bridegroom does for the bride. You know, John's writing here in the first century in the context of what would have been well-known of, of, of a Hebrew wedding. And in Hebrew weddings, one of the themes of it, and it's similar to today, is that you had uh, the betrothal, which was engagement, and the wedding separated by a period of time, which is the same with us. You have engagement, you have a wedding. Now, the other thing in a Hebrew wedding that we don't experience in our Western culture is what was called the dowry. And the dowry was the was the bride giving, or the bride or the bride's family giving a gift to the groom of, of money, of property, of some sort of wealth. And the purpose and what it was used for is that if uh, it would be for financial security, for widowhood, could be used to provide for the children, could be used to furnish a house. But there was a dowry given from the bride to the groom. Now, there's, there's big similarities here between the Hebrew wedding of the day and, and, and the wedding or the marriage of Christ to his church, but there's one major difference. What's similar? Betrothal, engagement, separated from wedding. In fact, in Christ, the bride was chosen before time. In the Old Testament, the wedding was announced. When Jesus assumed our flesh and blood in the incarnation, being born of the Virgin Mary, that was betrothal. That was the engagement. Of course, his second coming, when the bridegroom returns to get the bride, that'll be the wedding. And so we are in between first and second coming, between engagement and the wedding day, the same way. Here's the big difference. Remember in a Hebrew wedding with a dowry, the bride would give the gift of money to the groom. Not so in the marriage of Christ to his church. The dowry is Christ on the cross, on Calvary, Pouring out his blood, that Jesus pays. Jesus gives the gift of salvation. Jesus pays for his bride. And the point is this that you bring nothing to the table in this marriage. The only thing that you and I bring to the table is our sin and our rebellion. We don't bring our good works, we don't bring our good efforts as somehow payment to get it. No, Jesus prepares everything. The bridegroom prepares everything for the bride, for you, for me, in this wedding, in this joint. So if the first theme that comes out is, is, is Jesus preparing a bride for himself, how are we to understand the second theme that, theme that, that surfaces here of the bride preparing herself? Right? specifically verses seven to eight, when it says his bride, again, the bride, the church, has made herself ready and clothed herself. Or verse eight, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Right, So you've got the, the, the robe of righteousness that Jesus gifts to us, but then you hear you have a robe of, of righteous deeds or a robe of good works. How do those come together? How does Jesus' gift of righteousness tie into our works of righteousness or our good works. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what, uh, what that says is that the good works, the righteous deeds, are actually prepared for us Beforehand. God prepares them. Jesus empowers us to do them. And that means that for us to to do the righteous deeds that God's prepared, we have to be in vital union with Christ. And that's why the righteous deeds of the saints in, in, in verse eight is inseparable from what we read in verse 10. Look at verse 10. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold... To the testimony of Jesus. That word hold, it means to seize, it means to cling to. That word testimony in the Greek is martyria, it's where we get the word martyr. So put that together. What that describes is, is seizing Jesus, is holding to Jesus as our highest good and loving Jesus even more than we love our own lives. That's what Revelation 12 says about the martyrs. They love Jesus even more than their own lives. And you say, what's this have to do with righteous deeds? Well, there's another mention of righteous deeds in the scriptures, and it's in Isaiah. Isaiah says this, 64, six says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isaiah is saying that our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. They're dirty, they're polluted. John's saying here in Revelation that our righteous deeds are pure and bright. Which is it? And here's where holding to the testimony of Jesus draws these together. You see the righteous deeds present as the same on the surface, right? Same righteous deeds, different motivation, right? Different motivation, Explain it this way. What Isaiah is talking about is righteous deeds that are done for the the motivation of either being accepted by God or righteous deeds being done uh, to be accepted or affirmed by others, establish your reputation before others, or righteous deeds being done to feel better about yourself. Right? Right? going to a homeless shelter to serve food because you, you, you feel bad about your luxury or whatever. I, I've got to go feel better about myself. There's a lot of motivations for righteous deeds that Isaiah is talking about that pollutes them. It's not just what you do, it's why you do what you do. It's the motivation behind it that determines whether a righteous deed is polluted or bright and pure. The only way that your righteous deeds are bright and pure is if the motivation is for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. And that's where holding to the testimony of Jesus frees you up and empowers you to actually do something for the glory of God and the glory of Jesus and not for the glory of self. That when you understand that Jesus died on the cross, fully paid the penalty for your sin, that you're accepted by him, simply by you turning in faith and repentance to him, not doing anything, believing and turning from your sin and turning to him, that you're accepted. Now your righteous deeds flow out of having already been accepted. The only reason I do these is for the glory of Jesus and for the glory of God. But if you're not holding to the testimony of Jesus, this is where it's it's so dynamic, that if you're not holding to the testimony of Jesus, which means that I... I love Jesus more than I love my own life, that Jesus is the highest good. He is the reason for everything I do. If you're not holding to that, then there will always be an ulterior selfish motive for doing something, either for yourself or for someone else. This explains when, when someone says, wait a minute, why, why do I have a friend who doesn't know Christ, who they do all kinds of good things? How is that wrong? Or what, why does it? it's getting to the motivation, right? if, the, if the motivation is not for the glory of God and the glory of Jesus, it's a polluted righteous deed. And so, so Jesus, right, frees us from having to justify ourselves, from having to be accepted, earning God's acceptance, earning others' acceptance, earning our own acceptance, whatever it may be. Jesus frees us from needing to self-justify so that we can have righteous deeds that are done for his glory. Not for glory of self, not for glory of others. What characterizes the love of Christ? The protective love. It's a purifying love, right? It's It's a sacrificial love that sanctifies us. And it's a relational love. When united to him, we produce good works out of good motives. And then third, it's a communal love. It's a communal love. Verse two in verses nine and 10 of Revelation 21, describe the bride of Christ as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now the, the holy city that's described here, the new Jerusalem, is the church. That's what verses 12 to 14 affirm, that it's the church, right? Verses 12 to 14 talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. That's a description of Old Testament, New Testament, people of God. The church. Now, here's the key here. You as an individual aren't the bride of Christ. Y'all, I'll be Southern about it. Y'all are the bride of Christ. And not just y'all Christ Church East. Y'all church in the city of Jacksonville. Y'all church in the state of Florida, around the world. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you individually. Yes, he does. But he loves his bride, the church, communally. It's a communal love. And that has huge implications. Let me, let me speak to just two of them. Number one, when you understand that Jesus loves his bride, the church, the community of God's people, it it eats away at this rugged individualism that we have in our Western culture. It changes the question. I'll give you a few examples from what am I getting out of this community to what am I giving to this community? Or what am I getting out of this church to what am I giving to this church? Or how are my needs being met Two, how am I meeting the needs of others? That Jesus' love is a communal love that, that eats away at this rugged individualism that we have. Right? Second implication is verse 11 in chapter 21, which describes the bride, the church, as this. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, that verse 11, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make the point here again. That's not describing individual brides. That's not, you don't read that and say, it does my life in a silo reflect that? No, John is speaking of the church here, the community of God's people. And he's saying, right, at this vision into heaven, heavenly reality that one day will become an earthly reality. As he sees the church, he sees beauty in the way that as a community, they're loving one another. They're sacrificing for one another. They're bearing one another's burdens. They're encouraging one another. That's what is so beautiful here. As he describes a church, it is a community that is beautiful because it's a community that loves one another well, that sacrifices for one another well. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Generous Savior, he says this, And he gets it spot on. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. I am not myself by myself. Jesus' love is a communal love. He is bridegroom, and we, church, community of God's people, are bride. Jesus, as the bridegroom, loves us with a protecting love. He loves us with a purifying love, and he loves us with a communal love. Joni erickson Tata. she was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager. And as she reflects on her wedding day, she draws some parallels to Christ's love for his church. Listen to this. I felt awkward as my girlfriends strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off-center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front of me. There he was. Standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is to see our own lives and our own selves as unworthy and certainly unworthy for such a worthy and lovely bride. Bridegroom is Christ. And yet Jesus Christ has a bridegroom's love, a protective love, a purifying love, a communal love that is so deep and is so real. And he can't wait until the day when he returns, when we are united to him. That's the love of Christ. And that's why you need it. Because there is no other love in this world, no other love that can satisfy your heart. Nothing except for the love of Christ. So maybe this Christmas season, maybe this Advent, Maybe this is the the December or the Advent season where for the first time you understand the love of Christ and say, yes, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. I turn to you. I've, I've spent my life pursuing all kinds of love relationships outside of you. Money, success, people, grass is greener, something better, bigger, And the whole time I've missed your love for me. Jesus, yes. Yes, I receive you. Let's pray. Father, when we read the Bible, when we read your word, your story through the lens of this imagery that pervades your story, of a bridegroom and a bride. It changes the way we read it. And what we see is a God who so loved his creation, so loved his world, so loved the people he made. And yet a holy God that couldn't go light on sin or ignore sin. We see the beauty, Father, of what you did to rescue us. To honor your holiness, but to honor your love to 2,000 years ago, coming into this world in the person of Jesus Christ through the Virgin Mary into a manger that was an animal feeding trough. To read of your life, Jesus. To read of the last three years of your life where you went around and told the truth of who you were, the great bridegroom coming to rescue his bride, and that we're the recipients of that, completely undeserving, completely unworthy because of our sin. Father, it's the greatest story we could ever hear. We pray, and I pray for those gathered this morning that maybe have never understood or heard the story that way, never understood the the scriptures or the relationship between God and his people as a bridegroom and a bride, Father, would you draw them to yourself? Would you draw them to your son, Jesus? And Father, as a church, would we find our comfort and find our joy and find our satisfaction in our everything and you, Jesus, that we would hold to the testimony of you that we would love you above all else, even our own lives. Father, as we continue to worship and as we sing, may these words and these songs burst forth out of our hearts in gratitude for what you have done for us in sending Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.